0: The museum as a Uterodome. Before airing some thoughts about the possibility of putting the world on display and looking at the idea of the world exhibition, or World's Fair, I cannot resist treating you to a scary digression. Afterwards, I think, we will feel like Schiller's diver, who reemerged from the underwater depths and was grateful for breath and the rosy light of the world above. And there's a footnote here. This refers to the ballad Der Taucher, The Diver, by Friedrich Schiller, written in 1797 tells the story of a young knight who dives into the sea and returns with terrifying stories of what he saw in the depths. Shades of Lovecraft. Okay. Um, There is a kind of archetypal fantasy from the bourgeois 19th century about museums swallowing and retaining human beings. Patrick McGrath pursued this idea in a sarcastic short story, My Dead Body, which appeared in a catalogue to the exhibition, Permanent Collection, Bogomir Ecker, Raimund Kummer, Hermann Pitts, in the Brooklyn Museum of 1988, and is the most radical contribution to imaginary museology yet. Once you know this story, you will never think about the term permanent exhibition in the same way again. A very long quote here. Imagine awakening in utter darkness and realising you have been buried alive. Your most terrifying nightmare has become a reality. They have nailed you down in the coffin. They have lowered you to the ground and shoveled dirt on top of you. And then they have left you. Above you, in the thickening light of a grey winter afternoon in a cold North American city to which you are a stranger, you imagine a soft wind murmuring through bare trees that claw like grotesque hands out of the black earth. You see the dusk creeping over the deserted place, the shadows clustering above the headstones. The gates of the cemetery are locked for the night, and gradually the wind rises as darkness falls and howls in the trees like a demon below the ground in impenetrable blackness, in a total and absolute silence, you lie in a box and wait for death. I had come to the city to catalogue the contents of this museum. For some months I had been ill. Perhaps that explains why I was so sensitive to what was going on in the museum. No one else appeared to notice. You see, I had been there less than a week when I realised that a number of the items in the African gallery were not, strictly speaking, Inanimate. They weren't actually alive, not in the way that you and I are that you are alive or I am precariously alive, but the last traces of a decaying spiritual power still somehow clung to them, enough to stimulate movement and occasional sounds. The question arose in my mind what happened when the museum closed for the night? I hid in a toilet in the men's room, just off the grand lobby, and waited until everyone had left. A few lights burned, such as that a deep gloom pervaded the place, lending it rather a sinister aspect. I wandered between the display cases of the African gallery, surprised that these familiar objects should, merely by reason of reduced illumination and emptiness of the building, now seem so mysterious. My mood quickly changed, however, when I began to hear... The heavy, clumping footsteps. I traced the sound to its source. It was a Mbamba nail man from the Kingdom of Congo who was stamping his feet. It was at this point that I became truly frightened. I had realised, you see, that the nail man was after one thing only. Revenge. And that he carried within him all the anger, the pain of betrayal and destruction that the people of Congo had suffered at European hands. It was ironic, and I reflected as I climbed rapidly to the third floor, that such a vengeful spirit should have been carried back to the Western world, entombed in the museum where his malignant powers could grow like a cancer. They were all on the move now, even the limbless Roman torsos were dragging themselves across the floor towards the stairs. The black head of Julius Caesar floated through the gloom. A horrible red gleam deep in his dark eyes, and on came the scarab-breasted dummies. Up they came. I could go no higher, but still I could hear it distinct amid the hideous shuffle and rumble that filled the gloomy building, and I trembled with terror. I should be dead by now. By now I should be dead, these insects of the soil. They are in my ears and my eyes, my nose, up my anus. They are eating the soft parts, my earlobes, my penis, my inside thighs. Why won't I die? Why does life go on, even if the body is devoured? This is the curse of the nail man. I have chosen I have been chosen to suffer for the kingdom of Congo. They cornered me under James Hamilton's last days of Pompeii, and that is where the nail man laid his curse on me. I was found there the next morning in the absence of vital signs. I was presumed dead. That was three days ago. For three days I have been dead, and they think me dead now. But I am not dead, not at all, despite the coffin, the insects. Perhaps like the nail man I am condemned to live forever and remember the suffering of the people of Congo. Perhaps like him I will rise in the night. End <clears throat> quote. As I have said, the piece was published in an exhibition catalogue in New York and is quite literally a catalogue story. In the story, death becomes self-referential and finds euphemisms, words to accompany itself. Death is persuaded to speak out of the museum. From now on, something speaks that usually lacks speech, thanks to McGrath. And the cataloguing principle has penetrated not only into the museum at night, but also into the coffin, and continuously produces phrases from the innermost silence. The museological horror story relates to a human dream whose ambivalence intimately affects the character of the museum. Our first-person narrator speaks as if, while doing cataloguing work, he involuntarily discovered the shortest path to immortality. From the city, to the museum, from the museum, to the grave from the grave to the eternal inner light of awareness, still present there, even post-mortem. For him, the dream of immortality has turned into a nightmare, as though the museum were nothing but an institution to make nightmares come true. McGrath's helpless curator experiences a death in the first person. He becomes a living, buried person, a pure ego without a world. He enters directly from the ethnological collection into immortality, and we feel compelled ourselves to recognise a museological core in the idea of immortality. This basic theme of metaphysics, or more precisely to be aware of the idea of the historical metamorphosis of burial caves as essential for the museum of the modern age. The burial cave is in fact the imaginary space in which the contradiction between being dead and continuing to live seems to be suspended. The museum as a burial cave functions as a projection screen of imaginary death. It is there for the metaphysical piece of art to become complete and be preserved by the process of us losing ourselves. As our ghostly history shows, we should be cautious about seeing this extension of life after death as entirely positive. Imaginary death may mean immortality for me personally, and may allow me to think of myself as going further, even if I have to think myself out of this world. But the same thing in relation to other people implies something absolutely uncanny. I cannot believe your spirit has more permanence and capacity to return than my own. If I survive physical death, I know myself that it may lead directly to a heavenly high life. But if the others also survive their death, this will lead to even more ghosts, and we have reason to fear them intervening in our present life. This is why all human cultures are concerned about placating the dead. We have to keep them in a good mood. We have to satisfy their demands for piety, and above all, we have to take great care to do everything possible to prevent their return. Such measures have an allotted place in the psychodrama of cultures everywhere. There are points in the imaginary topography of all human communities where the affairs of the living are carried out with their dead. The domestic altars, the temples, tombs, cemeteries, monuments, catacombs, cathedrals, battlefields, war memorials. Even national calendars are subject to the requirements for appeasing the dead and keeping them away. In this light, it is not difficult to argue plausibly that museums of the 18th, 19th, and particularly the 20th century can largely be understood in terms of the psychodrama of modern arrangements for the disposal of the dead. As we know, the social status of the dead has fundamentally changed since the 18th century. The Enlightenment obstructed their return as spirits, demons, and manias. Since then, even important, high-ranking dead people have had to give up haunting and submit to enlightened regulation of authors' rights. The ancient and feudal constitution for ghosts is no longer adequate for processing the remains of terminated life. From now on, the great dead, who still have an impact, can only survive under copyright protection, which means as testators and as authors of works and testaments. Modernity retrospectively sends the geniuses and spirits of earlier times to school and to museums. It tells them they may only live on inside us if they turn into material for lessons or exhibitions. Dead people officially return only on the curriculum. They have to become classics and exhibition pieces, and in famous cases they return as creators of constant or rising values. Think of the ghostly success of Vincent van Gogh, who had been able to live from his paintings since he died. What I want to say briefly is that the conditions of survival for dead persons and dead things are beginning to change dramatically in the modern age, and that aside from cemeteries, the traditional places for housing and disposing of corpses, schools and museums are the institutions that have to bear the main spiritual responsibility for keeping the dead away. All the same, these institutions are also subject to the rule that keeping away the dead who are still living can only be achieved by cultural compromise. In other words, by invitations that refuse, by dispatching what has been fetched, by resuscitation that kills, by destructive preservation, by announcements that black out, by imaginings that distort, and by exhibiting that makes things invisible. The museums of the present achieve extraordinary things in all these disciplines. In many places, in fact, they go far beyond their allotted task and handle living artists as if they are already dead and as if the risk of their return should be eliminated by organising major exhibitions of their work as a precaution. In other words, museums... Rather like the neurotic symptoms of the Freudians, are compromise constructions between return and defence, raising and finishing off the past at the same time. They are centres for coming to terms with the past in the tenuous sense that they resist our conquest by the dead, by things of the past, former things and decrepit things. Patrick McGrath's story is the best kind of museology because it explains the crucial function of the museum by assuming it's failure. The curator's psychosis in relations to graves opens the way for inferences about normality in museums. He sees the museum pathologically as something that has become completely and utterly what the regular visitor only glimpses. The cave entrance in the belly of the earth The initiation site for reunification with the birthing element. The cultic location for visualising the path the ancestors had to follow to bring our nation to its place, and our culture to its present level. Because the narrator remains caught in the museum trap like a model victim, he makes us realise what is important for other visitors to find their way out as quickly as possible. Museums are the ideal modern institution for playing the game of fast in and out, the game that is vital for life. The museum is our official uterodrome, the circular racing arena of the uterus. Not everybody can embark on extensive underworld journeys and follow in the tracks of Orpheus, Aeneas, Dante, and the psychonauts of great psychoanalysis. But our museums are perfectly suited to the average person's rides through hell. This is why the widespread fear of museums is significant and indispensable to the museum as a place for keeping the dead away. People who enjoy spending time in museums are taking risks with the dead at close range. Maybe they already belong more to the exhibits than to the expounders. Maybe they're already deeply immersed in the undertow of the graves. Those who have not noticed recently that they are suffering from the typical, typical museum syndromes of tiredness, dizziness, weariness with life, nausea, claustrophobia, breathlessness, yawning and the panicked rush for the exit should consult a psychoanalyst, or even better, an analyst of existence as soon as possible, otherwise the museum may well claim further victims." Another aspect of a healthy and functioning museum is that we are not haunted by the things preserved there, and we are completely convinced they are not alive. McGrath's museum worker breaks this rule shockingly by acting like a primitive animalist and attributing more life to the exhibits than they legitimately deserve. His most unforgivable failing is that his ears detect something we do not usually hear and he identifies with the whispered messages of the figures in the museum as if they had spoken to him personally and shared their secrets with him. The Curse of the Nail Man from the Congo is a typical ghost story, although it comes from the 16th century. It has managed to slip through the Enlightenment censorship and can be heard in the inner ear of a thoughtless present-day museum employee. The Mbamba Nail Man is a contemporary of Luther's writings, Calvin's sermons, Michelangelo's sculptures, and Durer's paintings. It seems, of course, as if we have got rid of these voices and constructs and can assume that the figure from the Congo is just as securely established in museum culture as his European counterparts. McGrath's story shows the opposite. When the museum fails, our defence against the dead becomes porous at that point, and missions, prophecies and curses that are hundreds, indeed thousands of years old, can speak to us as if there were a breach in the historical wall of time. The museum is where we realise the ghostly element of intellectual history. There is still no history of culture that, however hidden, would not simultaneously be a history of continuing possession by spirits. That was a spooky one.